1: stylization in CG is the part that is time-consuming because you have to articulate if it's a mug, well, it's not just a mug. It's got to have this sort of quality to it. It's got to have this, and the way it's lit has to be this. This this becomes like a very arduous process um, of decision-making.
0: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Karen Hahn. Karen, it's so great to see you again. How are things? Things are pretty good. Yeah.
2: I mean, it's always a delight to see you, June. And as I was saying off mic beforehand, I just
0: received a zine that you made, which I'm going to treasure forever. Wow. Well, I just have looked at the calendar and I just want to mention, listeners, that this is the episode that will go out closest to the publication date of Karen's book. I just made a zine, but Karen made a whole book and it will be published (laughs) on the 22nd of November. And it's called Bong Jun ho Dissident Cinema, isn't it, Karen Han? Yes,
2: that's right. It's coming out November 22nd. Uh, some pre-orders are already out there, which is the crazy wow. thing. Like a couple people have at mentioned me on various social media platforms showing me pictures of their book. It's wild.
0: <laughs> that's amazing. Well, congratulations. I know. Thank you so uh, it much. It must feel good. Well, let's get back to the voice that we heard at the top of the show. Who mm-hmm. did that belong to? So this week I talked to three people, actually. I talked
2: to Daisutsumi, Robert Kondo, and Sarah Sampson, the geniuses behind the new series Oni Thunder God's Tale.
0: And for anyone who hasn't heard of Oni Thunder God's Tale, how would you describe it? It's a
2: series about a community of Japanese spirits and gods, uh, Kami, preparing for the night of the blood moon when they believe they'll be attacked by oni or demons. Uh, a young girl named Onari is the main character, and unlike the rest of her friends, she has yet to develop her powers. Like, mm. the rest of them are already exhibiting the powers that they've inherited from their parents, but she just hasn't manifested them yet. So the show follows her struggle to fit in with her community as well as her relationship with her thunder godfather, Nari naridan who's a very big red round imposing presence but very very well, cute
0: <laughs> wow and i take it it's animation
2: mm-hmm. yeah and it's <laughs>
0: streaming on netflix right now so you can go ah, watch it awesome all right and i believe that you asked them some questions that are intended exclusively for slate plus members That's right. I asked them about the choice of
2: English as the default language for the series, given that it's so heavily steeped in Japanese folklore and its creators are Japanese of Japanese heritage. Um, And I think the question leads to a very interesting answer about the development process as well as how they view the show.
0: Well, that is very obviously going to be totally fascinating. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll get to hear that at the end of the show. And if for some unfathomable reason you are not yet a member of Slate Plus, why not sign up today? You'll get extra segments on shows like ours and Culture Gabfest, The Waves. Some shows like One Year and Big Mood Little Mood produce entire episodes just for members, and you will never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slatecom workingplus. All right, now let's listen in on Karen's conversation with Dice Tsutsumi, Robert Kondo, and Sarah Sampson.
2: Hello, I'm so excited to chat with you all about Oni Thunder God's Tale. Uh, First, for our listeners, I was wondering if you could introduce yourselves and your roles on the series.
3: My name is Dice Tsutsumi. I am the creator and the director of Thunder God's Tale.
4: My name is Sarah Sampson. I am the producer of Oni Thunder God's Tale.
1: And my name is Robert Kondo, and I was an executive producer and production designer and voice on Oni Thunder God's Tale.
2: Oh, really? I totally missed that. What voice did you provide?
1: (laughs) I played um, the bullies, Nama and Hada. (laughs) Everyone knows your weirdo dad just goose around the forest all day. What <laughs> did you say about Nari That's enough. Nari Dad's a big goof. <laughs>
2: That's fantastic. Um, so before we get too deep into the series, I wanted to talk about Tonko House, the studio that uh, Dice and Robert, you two co-founded and produced the series with. Um, can you tell me a little bit about founding your own independent animation studio?
1: About eight years ago, Dice and I had created a short called The Keeper*. It was an 18-minute animated short that got us quite a bit of attention and an Academy Award nomination. And we had created that while we were art directors, sort of in our free time um, mm-hmm. while we were at Pixar. And based on that experience, you know, our perspective of filmmaking and the experience of starting something and finishing something and the feeling of everyday... Coming into the studio excited, but nothing ever went to plan, became sort of our everyday, and we loved it, and it just felt we wanted to sort of take that experience and make it our everyday by starting our own studio um, to seek out stories that you know we had within us um, to put it out into the world. and um, yeah.
2: And this is a bit of a side question, but when did you two first decide you wanted to work together? When did you first start collaborating?
3: Well, both Robert and I worked on the same films as art directors. Robert was specialized in the set design art direction and I was specialized in lighting and color art direction. Mm -hmm. You know, we had very similar ambitions and you know, sort of hunger to grow and just wanted to be a better storyteller, better art directors. So when we worked on our independent short, The Keeper, it kind of came natural to me. I'm curious if it was for Robert, but I really <laughs> wanted to work with him even outside of Pixar uh, project.
1: Yeah, D- Dice is sort of a, um, a force of nature. W- w- even just collaborating on the short, was in the middle of us working on Monsters University. It's that Mm -hmm. crazy period of production when you're just working nonstop. And we actually were there late at night uh, working on sort of artwork and, you know, exhausted, tired. In the middle of that is when Dice is like, hey, I have an idea. What if we take time (laughs) off and work endlessly on a short that will be (laughs) painted frame by frame? Um, And that's sort of Dice. I, I think he's always somebody who you know, whatever he starts, he finishes. And and mm-hmm. that's what made me sort of drawn towards partnering with him to create a studio.
2: Yeah. Okay, so now I want to talk specifically about Oni Thunder God's Tale. Dice, how did this project come about?
3: Over five years ago, uh, we had this exhibition in Japan uh, of Tonkaus exhibition. And, yeah. you know, we were exhibiting artwork from the dam keeper and other projects that we've done. And there was a section called The Future of Tonko House, where mm-hmm. we would exhibit things that we have in mind or we're working on that haven't been published. Um, and Robert asked me that we do one or two paintings each that, you know, sort of no restrictions. You can do whatever you want and you can just paint it and, as if that's like the next project. And one of them was a painting of Naridon and Onari together. At the time I had no sort of story yet but it was mm-hmm. about a Japanese folklore inspired story that I thought would be really cool to explore uh, because you know Japanese folklore is something that I grew up with.
2: And Sarah when did you become involved with this project?
4: I remember chatting with Dice I think in 2019 you shared mm-hmm. you know the the spark of this idea. And towards the end of that year, I heard the official pitch of how Oni was shaping up. And honestly, I was so drawn to this epic adventure and just saw so much potential in this story. It was very specific to Dice's own journey, and Dice, you should definitely share that. But I also found myself in the story of Onari, and I just immediately saw how anyone could relate to Onari's journey. Um, I think we're all trying to figure out how we fit in this world. And just for me specifically, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky. (laughs) I think there are more cows than people and then had big, big dreams of becoming a filmmaker and moving to California and just trying to figure out how I fit in this new environment, you know, in this new community. And of course, Dice's story also very personal. Um, Dice, do you want to share more about, you know, kind of the the origin of, of Oni?
3: Yeah, so even though he started as just a piece of painting, as we started to dig into the story, what is it th- about Japanese folklore that I was drawn to? And I came to uh, this character, Oni, which is a sort of like a classic villain character in all of most of Japanese folklore ca- uh, stories. And there was a historical theory that the Oni might have been a description of people who look different from mm-hmm. Japanese locals, like foreigners that lived in Japan long, long time ago. They look different. They look bigger. The skin's color was different. Um, and to people, they look like monsters. And people assume they were bad. People assume they're villains, they're evil. And that idea of like where Oni came from, I was drawn to because that really felt like what's happening today. Mm-hmm. Personally, you know, I migrated to the United States when I was 18. And ever since I lived as a foreigner in this country and I worked in the film business as a minority and um, I really felt like I want to write a story from sort of like, an outsider's point of view uh using this idea of oni oni mm-hmm. is a story of an outsider and how people feared others that are outside or others that you don't understand and i was there and i as a minority you know filmmaker i felt like I could relate to this story, you know. So even though the story is inspired by Japanese folklore, I think the story will be very current. So when I pitched that idea to pretty much everybody who came to join the journey of Oni, including Mm. Robert and Sarah, everybody said, oh, I know that story. I can see myself in that story. And that's when we all felt like, you know what? This is worth making. We have to push towards turning this into a real Uh, project.
2: So as you mentioned, this is a very personal project for you. And I understand that your mom was involved in some way. Can you explain a little further about that collaboration?
3: Basically, my mother wrote a song, Lullaby, uh, for the series. Uh, She and I collaborated over the years, you know, with her poetry. She's a poet. Uh, She Mm -hmm. was a poet. And I always illustrated her poetry, you know, Mm -hmm. I thought it would be really cool to have her write a song, uh, which was so important to the story. Um, but she wrote it as she was kind of, you know, nearing her uh, the end of her life, mm-hmm. and um, so sh- that ended up being our last collaboration. Um, she passed uh, in the middle of production of Oni, mm. um, but like overall, sort of story concept was already there. And uh, I pitched that idea uh, to my mother, and, um, and then, there, you know, there was a significant story point of, you know, uh, main character Onari hearing the lullaby sort of in her memory, in her dreams, and I thought it'd be perfect for my mother to write it.
2: And obviously, we have to talk about the look of the series, which is so distinct and so unique and so lovely. Um, Oni is described as being a three D stop motion hybrid animated series. Can you explain what that means?
1: Yeah, you know the the series itself is actually completely three D um, mm-hmm. CG three D. But the beginning of the project, we worked with a studio called Dwarf. That's a stop motion studio in Japan. They're an amazing studio. They've done so much amazing work. And so we collaborated at the beginning to create a stop motion sort of test. And Dice just loved that look, the tactile quality of stop motion, how every corner of it is crafted. You know, there was a moment where we considered doing the whole thing in stop motion, but Mm -hmm. the story just kept getting bigger and bigger. And also... All of us, a lot of the leadership at Tonko House, our past, our career thus far has really been in CG, um, making CG animated films. So we sort of took that test and made it sort of our visual North Star and wow. took that and, and tried, you know, worked with a studio called Megalus to really... Get that craftsmanship, that feel, but also this sort of epic quality of the story that we wanted um, in CG. And we were really excited, um, yeah, just to try something different um, mm-hmm. in that medium.
2: Was there ever a time when you'd considered doing it as 2D? I ask mostly because there are these segments in the series where there are these beautiful paintings done in 2D that are used to render, like, some stories. And I was wondering if, like, that was ever a contender for the main look. And even besides that, like, how you developed that particular look for those segments.
3: I think the very first animation test we did was 2D, right, Robert? Mm -hmm. Um, That's right. We did that in 2D. And, you know, we made the Dam Keeper uh, short and Dam Keeper poems uh, in 2D and we kind of pretended that we knew how to do 2D and we're like, <laughs> okay, 2D is the easiest, you know, and then of course that's not the case. But uh, as you mentioned that, you know, there is a s- couple of sequences that have that sort of 2D sort of Japanese traditional uh, paper theater look. Mm-hmm. Um and that was fun that was really fun to um kind of play with uh it was not only uh super appropriate for the story point but also we have a lot of very capable art department at tonko House that you know we take pride in and 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 uh, they excel whenever we challenge them with you know the type of uh sort of two dimensional solutions they can you know, come up with something really beautiful in which they did. So, yeah, we're so super proud of that sequence.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of that creativity, I will say, comes from our sandbox. You know, we have a finite amount of resources, and then we have mm-hmm. to get very creative on how we can do the story justice and, and honor, you know, this great big scope. And especially when we started going deeper into Naridan's past, Butaro's past, um, it just... It married very well, right? Like with the traditional Japanese paper theater, like Dice mentioned, but also worked very well with our resources because we can't always go create, you know, a, a giant new set in CG. Um, so I think we found a good balance, but it, it really forced us to turn some of our constraints into our strengths.
2: Yeah. Um, And I wanted to ask you to tell me a little bit more about translating the feeling of stop motion animation to CG, for instance, making sure that the character models have this tactile sense to them, as well as, like, considerations about the frame rate, because that's one of the things that really makes it look like stop motion, where there are these slightly kind of jerky transitions. Can you tell me about how you developed that?
3: Yeah. Robert, you want to talk about the
1: tactile? uh... Yeah. Yeah. The wonderful thing and and the most difficult thing to me about CG is the fact that everything you you see on screen has to be invented. Mm. And so when in consideration of really the look of a CG animated film you can play with anything you can play with the form of something you can play with the texture of something and we've seen wonderful especially over the last few years like wonderful experiments with painterly looks and and you know playing with what that could possibly be in the beginning this is the first time that you know we really have done something you know for for series work uh, we're mm. used to sort of giant big studios like Pixar or Blue Sky. Um, And going in, knowing that, we felt like we needed to limit our choices. In other words, Mm -hmm. our exploration, we we couldn't, stylization in CG is the part that is time-consuming because you have to articulate if it's a mug, well, it's not just a mug. It's got to have this sort of quality to it. It's got to have this. And then the texture has to be this. And the way it's lit has to be this. this. This becomes like a very arduous process um, of decision-making. And so in order to sort of streamline our, our capabilities within you know a more sort of limited amount of resources than what we were used to in our past, we limited those decisions. So one of the first things we did was we just said photorealistic textures. In other mm. words, we're not going to do sort of all these different things um, with the texture. But the form of it, we wanted to capture a... A sort of miniature feel. So that meant like the corners of a cabinet might be rounder and softer than you might see in reality. Um, The trees, even the forest, it looks very, you know, believable hopefully, but the proportion of the moss to like the tree bark and all of that, we played with it so that it, again, it, it not just had sort of a tactile quality, but sort of a very approachable quality in which Things felt a little softer, and the proportion of things felt right um, to support this puppet feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of these things, really, in the end, were a bit of a result of having to identify where we wanted to really explore the style of our film. But at the end of the day, it meant you know a limited number of choices in a way, and that actually helped us to be creative. It, it you know the sand, the closed-in sandbox actually really allowed us to explore the lighting and the feel of, you know, it it put a lot of, um, a lot of weight actually on the lighting and, and, and working with, um, comping these things together into the frame to, to create, a feeling, Because that's always mm. our, our, you know, sort of desired output is actually creating a feeling that you know what it feels like to be in the forest. You know what it, you know, you have an imagination to appeal to the other senses of what does it smell like? What does it feel like? Um, that are sort of non-visual senses um, that really became uh, critical to the look of the film.
3: Yeah, I think we try to capture the charm. So it wasn't necessarily the fact that it's this kind of, uh, limited frame look that stop motion captures, but the stop motion, just at least the test we did had such a charm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this sort of like the the origin of the word animation. You know, the just kind of giving soul into something. You know, just the stop motion has that sort of like most obviously. Um, you know, sometimes creating a very strong natural performance with limited frames requires actually more skills because you have to, like, each frame counts more, each frame means more. Mm -hmm. So we looked at uh, some of the best animations from 80s in Japan, like a Japanese uh, television animation from 80s, you know, they, they had a really difficult uh, budget and resource challenges back then. (laughs) So uh, they had a very limited frame ratio. But some of the best animations uh, from Japan come from that era because they had to be very good with each frame, each pose. And they really stayed focused on just striking these beautiful poses in each frame. Um, We looked at that very much and, and tried to focus more on the strong poses as opposed to Sort of flowy, like super smooth um, uh, animation like mm-hmm. we see at Disney or, or uh, Pixar animation, um, which we love too. But we wanted to do something that we can do, uh, considering like this animation was mostly done in Japan. We wanted to use the strength of Japanese animators. Mm
4: mm-hmm.
0: We'll be back with more of Karen's conversation with Dice Sumi, Robert Kondo, and Sarah Sampson after this.
4: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling
0: Listeners, I hope you've been enjoying Working Overtime, the bi-weekly bonus version focused on listener questions that we launched earlier this year. We absolutely love to give advice and we want to answer your questions, respond to your concerns and generally share ideas on that show. Is there a creative problem you're having or a creative practice that's working very well for you right now? Well, drop us a line at working at slate.com or call us and leave a voicemail at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to Karen's conversation with Daisutsumi, Robert Kondo, and Sarah Sampson.
2: Robert, I'm glad that you mentioned the sort of, I guess, rules that you guys put on yourselves while you're making this film, because that was actually another question that I wanted to ask. And I was curious if you had any other examples of what you decided like not to do or what you could do um, within the structure of the film.
1: Yeah, we did have sort of parameters that we set up. It was more like a decision-making process and design. Mm -hmm. So there are three elements to this. One was sort of, Function, we always wanted to fo- focus on function, so for instance, if it is Naridon, you know he's he 's this big red monster he he doesn 't speak um, you know there 's sort of a function to him in that he 's a dad um, <laughs> and he 's sort of a mystery, and so that 's sort of what I would say is like the function of something, and then I think the other thing is the cultural context. So making sure that we take it and uh, we worked with a lot of consultants, with with very specific consultants that helped us to make sure, uh, beyond having just even a crew that was steeped in Japanese culture, um, that it always connected back appropriately and was paying respect back to, you know, this story that we were uh, creating in the Japanese culture. And so it would be those two things. And then the final thing would really be what is the aspect of this that makes it fantasy? Mm. And so, you know, that if you look at like Naughty Don's design, you know, a demon, a big Oni demon, if you look at like old woodcuts and, and, and illustrations or statues of Oni in the past, they're these big muscular painted red guys with horns, and they have all the same elements, you know, the horns and all that. Um, And it is very specifically Japanese, but then through Dice's hand, it becomes almost this very appealing, huggable creature that is um, sort of our fantasy, very specific to our show. Mm -hmm. Um, Those were the sort of simple ways that no matter if it were a mug or a cup or a character or our forest, we applied those rules sort of universally throughout to try to be consistent in delivering... Um, this made-up world um, to the audience. Mm-hmm.
2: And you've mentioned that, again, the series is one that has a really incredible scope. Like, there are these really domestic scenes between Onari and Naridan, and then you have these, like, the Thunder God sequences, as per the title, where these really incredible things are happening. And I'm curious if there was any particular sequence that was difficult to pull off where you think of that one as being, like, the hardest thing to achieve in the series.
4: I'm curious, Dice, what you're going to say, but I I will (laughs) say it was actually the more simple scenes Mm. that were the most challenging because there is so much focus on the performance, right? On the animation. And that took extra time to get right. But um, I think, Dice, we always think of the same scene, but I would love to hear your thoughts on what you felt was most challenging. Were you
3: thinking about (laughs) PB&J? That's always sort of... My favorite, but also it was the hardest scene uh, to really make it feel right. Uh, performance, camera, lighting, because it's so simple, that reveals uh, the weakness so easily if you're not careful.
5: PB and J. This is my dad's specialty. My mom doesn't like it, so I eat it when she's not around.
3: PB and J sequence has a peanut butter and a jam. There is uh, in the very first, in the beginning of cha- uh, episode one, there is a uh, the natto, is a Japanese mm-hmm. uh, fermented beans. Um, those were hard to do in CG.
2: Ugh.
4: Does the great hero eat natto? Yeah. That smell. Ugh.
3: And yet, they don't necessarily. They're, they're not directly connected to the plot of the story. Mm-hmm. So to push for, you know, people like Sarah, especially like to, to say, okay, we need to spend money there. <laughs> Even though <laughs> it doesn't necessarily kind of push the story forward in a very Western um, way of kind of a story structure. Uh, but for me, it was so important for the emotion of the characters and it was so important for the... The relationship of the characters. So, you know, those are the hardest things that uh, it, it didn't seem like a big deal, but it, it kinda was a big deal and and it was uh difficult <laughs> to make. <Yeah. laughs>
4: I can't understand. watch Oni on an empty stomach. Yeah, I get so it's hungry. <laughs> All
2: the food looks so delicious. Um, Dice I I wanted to circle back to one thing you said you mentioned like certain parts of Oni like what hues to a more western story be and obviously you've said that this story draws a lot from Japanese folklore and um, your own background Uh, I'm curious how you personally would define the difference between western and eastern storytelling if that's not too kind of Uh meta a question to ask
3: I, I think in general you know this is my perspective, so mm-hmm. it, I could totally be wrong. But I feel like in general, you know, having worked at a place like Blue Sky Pix- and Pixar, we have this uh, discipline of trying to make sure like every scene, sometimes every shot should have a meaning, should have a purpose and mm-hmm. should have um, the plot of the story moving. Like let's make sure stories continuously moving which I still take as a really uh, a discipline that I hold true to. Uh, but also when I watch like a lot of the Western animated films, I always feel like rushed, you know, mm. uh, that's like just the way I watch movies and the way I want to consume, you know, like I'm one of those people. I love reading like novels, right? Like mm-hmm. when I read books, I had to stop And think, like, I can't continuously read. That's the Mm -hmm. way I consume content, story. Um, So for me, I need, in the movies, I need the breathing room, too. Like, even though, yes, I know the story has to stop (laughs) here. But I just want to give a little bit of break, you know. Yeah. Um, But also, I don't want to lose the audience either. So it's always a balance, you know. I feel like Tonkaos is such a great place where we we love both, you know. And we always try to find the right Balance and and hopefully we were able to do that with Oni. Like it wasn't. There are definitely slow moments, and I've seen people complaining. Oh, it's a little slow. But really? I've seen people complaining, especially in Japan. Like ah, sometimes it gets fast, and I don't know what's going on. You know? <laughs> so I think mean, for me, like ah, that's that's the right balance. Like yeah. I, I I want some people to be complaining that it's it's moving slow because I like slow. You know. Mm-hmm. But also, I want to make sure that, that you don't lose audience, you know. Yeah.
1: It's, it's really interesting because to, to, to think of it that way, you know, I think as filmmakers, I don't think Dice or myself, you know, sort of think of East first West. I yeah, feel like we ourselves are sort of represent that with our own identities. In other words, mm-hmm. you know, I'm Japanese American, so and, and Dice grew up. In Japan, but then, uh, you know, as as an adult, as an artist, move over here and worked here in the industry. And so it's really interesting to ask that question because it forces us to think. But at the same time, I think for us as filmmakers, it's very instinctual because it Mm -hmm. comes back to what has influenced us and what we like that tends to be sort of a blend between Eastern and Western films. And I, you know, like, I, I think a lot of people in looking at Oni have you know, talked about Miyazaki, um, and, you know, Miyazaki is not within our studio, but he might as (laughs) feels like he is sometimes because his, you know, his work is, is such a presence within, you know, that has inspired us. Um, and at the same time, we all grew up in Western studios, um, and we love, you know, what those studios have made. And, um, and I think a lot of times what it comes down to is when, I love filmmaking when it becomes instinctual, you know, when it's sort of like, I'm not quite sure where this is coming from. And, but I know, you know, and I think I love hearing Dice articulate it because, you know, it's not, we haven't really talked about it, but I can see that in his filmmaking where he just is looking at a scene and he's like, I just need to breathe here.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess my next question sort of is on the opposite side of the instinctual scale, I guess. But I wanted to ask about building out this story as well. Um, obviously you had some sort of idea of what you wanted the story to be first going into the project, but then you have uh, your lead writer, uh, Mari Okada, and then a story team working with you. So what? how much did you first bring to them, and then how much did you build out from there?
3: I would say, um, you know, the basic story concept we had, because, uh, uh-huh. you know, even before Mari started writing, we were just prepping sort of, like, overall, like, kind of season outline and stuff like that Mm -hmm. but I I gotta say uh, the basic idea basic concept was always there and it we stayed true to that Everything else, I feel like we built together with the team. And, you know, Amari's contribution was incredible. Like, I mean, she's the one who wrote the Japanese script, but also Mm. she really, you know, with me and with everybody else, like she made the overall story together. So it wasn't just a script. Like I was constantly talking to her, even when we were animating, when after she was finished with the script, (laughs) I just kept just talking to her and just getting her feedback and um, in the same way our story team our episodic directors Eric oh and Hikari Toriyomi they contributed to the story just as much and and this is something that, that I think is important that mm-hmm. in particular in animation storyboard artists are a part of the writing team you know yeah. they write the story together with us I, they're not using the words you know they, they visualize it but it's not like they only illustrate what's on the script. They pitch ideas, they come up with different lines, and we take it, and we go back and rewrite. And it's such a, a team process. And I know that's true to every production, but I just don't think it's said enough, you know, in the world where you only spotlight certain individuals. But uh, yeah. um, I really enjoyed working with this team. And at the end of the day... Uh, the The story, I would say, was being adjusted until the very end. Um, wow. The in terms of like little nuances here and mm-hmm. there. The only thing that we stayed true to was the very, very, very original sort of vision that we all shared. The story of an outsider, like you know, a fear of unknown. That mm-hmm. that we should we really stuck to. Uh, as long as that sort of central vision is solid. I really believe that storytelling can be adjusted throughout until the end.
2: Well, thank you all so much for taking the time to chat with me about your series. It's so, so wonderful. And I can't wait to see what you all make next.
3: Thank you very much, thank and you and thank Karen. Thank you so much,
2: Karen.
5: Hi. Karen,
0: I loved Dice and Robert's version of the origin story of Oni. You know, they Mm -hmm. had a Tonko House art exhibit in Tokyo and they each painted the future, you know, their next project. (laughs) And that's what convinced them that it should be inspired by Japanese folklore. Mm -hmm. That question of what would you like to do next? It can be so difficult to answer because the world is very large, right? And that's a really kind of inspiring way to figure it out. When you are at a similar place of what's next, decision making, what are the kinds of things that you do to generate ideas?
2: I think I do do something similar like I'll try to write down as many log lines as pop into my head mm. for a story whether it's a character or some detail about the world and then sort of circle back and look at what I've got and see what I think can be fleshed out and to what degree because I think you can tell what will lend itself to what format when you're yeah. thinking about it kind of more broadly whether it you're like, oh, this should be a feature film or, oh, this should be a TV show. That said, I think I always sit down with maybe more intention than they're describing in their story, which is maybe why it feels kind of more like work sometimes. Yeah.
0: Which is, I I
2: think, a a trap that we all often fall into.
0: For real. I also loved their answer to the question about the contrast between, I guess you could say the domestic and the epic in Mm -hmm. Oni. And how the domestic scenes were some of the hardest, in part because it's maybe easier to make a pitch for more money to create Armageddon or something massive than it is to render Natto properly, you know? And it's a sign of a healthy project that they all seem to agree that it was important to get that small stuff right. I mean, that's a really good sign of, of the project, right? I mean, obviously it's good if you're all on the
2: same page or at least working in a way that is helping all of you rather than hindering. I guess that's where like <laughs> constructive criticism comes in. Yeah. Um, that said, I think they're also totally right about these sort of domestic details being incredibly important because they're ultimately what's more familiar to any viewer. Like if mm. you're watching a giant like epic fight, none of us have ever really been in that position before. So you can kind of go pretty wild with it. But mm. if it's like, eating a bowl of rice, like, that's a pretty common experience and you have to make sure that it is grounded in some kind of reality, which is harder to do. And those details make a world feel more lived in and I think yep. are kind of more affecting in the end. Like, in the interview they mentioned Studio Ghibli and Hayao Miyazaki's work and I think that's kind of a prime example. Like, I think the scene that I think about the most in Spirited Away is the scene where the main character is like crying and eating a rice ball. <laughs> just because it's rendered in in a way that's so careful and so recognizable
0: the little things really really do matter yeah also is there anything more relatable than crying while eating no it's absolutely true I was unexpectedly moved by the way that Dice and Rubber especially mm-hmm. talked about using folklore and traditional forms to explore a universal question. In their case it was how we acknowledge differences without resorting to fear or scapegoating. Mm-hmm. I've never been a folklore or mythology person. But <laughs> I wonder, is there a traditional story that you've been drawn to explore or reframe?
2: Yeah, I'm generally really interested in Korean folklore as someone Mm -hmm. of Korean heritage, maybe obviously, Mm -hmm. and I've thought a lot about trying to adapt a Korean folk story to a a short film Mm -hmm. or something like that, but I haven't given it more serious
0: thought than that just
5: yet, Mm -hmm. but
2: what about you?
0: Well, it's funny, as I say, I'm not into folklore or mythology, but I've been really drawn, you know, when I talk, when I think about, like you know, when you're asked to describe yourself in however many uh, adjectives, you know, three, five, whatever the number yeah. is. One of the ones that I always go for is northern because I'm from mm-hmm. you know, the north of England. It's there's, you know, it, it's a culture. Um, yeah. And even though I moved away when I was very young and I don't live there now, I feel a great deal of pride. And there is, you know, there's a language that I think is disappearing. I don't hear it anymore. I grew up speaking it with my parents, but my mom doesn't really use it anymore because, you know, she used to use it with her parents or her husband mm-hmm. who and, you know, th- those people have gone. So maybe uh, something to do with, you know, northern language. Um, I just borrowed from the library a book uh, that is written in a Scots. I don't know. I, never, you, I never know if it's OK to say dialect or if that's almost a slur against the integrity of the language, but certainly... You Know the language I grew up speaking was always referred to as a dialect, um, and it's just maybe it was inspiring. So maybe when I'll go mm-hmm. home, I'll take some recording and see if oh, I can cool. get some words down. Yeah, yeah, Karen. I am definitely going to watch Oni Thunder oh, God's Tale. They really made me excited about it. It sounds amazing, <laughs> and having taken a quick squint, I know it looks amazing, mm-hmm. but. As you know, I am an animation (laughs) know-nothing, and so I wonder, can you point out one thing in Oni that will enhance my experience and appreciation of the show, something for me to watch out for, maybe? Yeah,
2: I think we talk about this a little in the episode, but I think paying attention to the textures is a big thing. It's a part of what we were talking about with regard to the little details, I guess. Mm. Like even in the big battle scenes, there's such care put into the little details, like the texture of smoke or of a monster. And then in the little scenes, like the texture of the rice, and again, the texture of the natto. And I also (laughs) think it's worth it if you're not familiar with Japanese folklore, I guess this is not really an animation bit, but still sort of go on an Easter egg hunt with the Kami me in the show that you don't recognize because all of them like are named at some point so that you could go look them up and see what their deal is and it is a lot of fun to do because I mean there's such fun stories and such weird little details about all the monsters and I think it will sort of enrich your
0: viewing of the show amazing that is all the time we have this week, though, unless, of course, you are a Slate Plus subscriber, in which case you will hear a little something extra from this week's interview. Not only that, but you'll get extra segments on shows like Culture Gavfest and The Waves. You'll hear entire episodes just for you of shows like Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. For more information, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to our guests, Dice
2: Tsutsumi, Robert Kondo, and Sarah Sampson. And thanks to our wonderful producer, Cameron Drews. Next week, guest host and friend of the show, Zach Rosen, will be talking to two members of The Hinterlands, an innovative Detroit theater group. Until then, get back to work.